0: Coming to you from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn, this is 112BK. On the show today, Earth Day is this weekend and a marine biologist will make a case for optimism. And exploring secret Brooklyn, little known gems in this giant borough. Hi, welcome to the show. I'm Ross Tuttle, Ashley Ford is still recovering but we hope to see her back soon. Today, the two black men who were arrested for trespassing in a Starbucks in Philadelphia last week spoke about their ordeal on morning TV. The event sparked a lot of backlash against the corporate giant and anger in general about all too often criminalization of blacks for behavior that doesn't even register when done by whites, and what has become known as retail racism. Starbucks CEO Kevin Johnson has called for a day of sensitivity training for employees in May in their 8,000 stores across the country. Some are calling it a smart response, others are calling it a cynical marketing campaign. Whatever you want to call it, it's an important opportunity to reflect on where we spend our dollars. I have my own reasons for not going to Starbucks when I have a choice. It's important that a message is sent though, that this kind of thing won't be tolerated. Calling for a boycott is extreme in my belief, but if you're doing it because you think their coffee sucks or breakfast sandwiches taste like plain food, that's another matter. As I've said, there have been a lot of responses, and one by brooklyner.com has been to identify black-owned coffee shops here in Brooklyn, 36 and counting, in case people want to support them instead of a corporate faceless giant. And now Eric Adams says he'll visit some of those shops, that's Borough President Eric Adams, in the coming weeks to encourage people to know and support these local mom and pops. We have on the phone right now co-owners of a couple mom and pops, Bittersweet in Fort Greene and Sit and Wonder in Prospect Heights. Lucian and Gemma Redwood, thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having us. Hi, Ross. Hey, how's it going? Good, good.
0: Good. So you guys, I mean, bittersweet. It's such a a great neighborhood institution. Um, Always a line out the door when I ride my bike by it in the morning. What what, what do you guys think makes it such an institution in the neighborhood? What's important about it for the neighborhood?
2: We've been there for
3: quite a long time, and we've just built up um, a relationship with the community, I think. And uh, we're happy to be a part of the of the neighborhood.
0: When this story first broke about what happened in Starbucks in Philadelphia, did it, did it register much? Did you, did you hear about it, and what did you think about it?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I read about it um, a few days ago, and then I started uh, reading about it a little bit more online. And um, my, my response was, um, it, I was shocked, really. I was shocked that, that something like this could happen in Starbucks. But then again, you know cutting through the layers, you know again, it's two black men being being profiled so that that to me is a problem, not just with Starbucks, but that is a problem in this country period
0: sure and, and Lucian, you said this has happened to you on on a number of occasions, unfortunately
1: yes, when you talk about like retail I mean I, I you know I mean i'm I'm a little older than uh, these guys, but, you know, throughout my life, I've always had people following me around shops, you know, it, and it's just the, the feel of that and, you know, people looking at you in stores with that look. So it's something that I think that everybody in this country needs to be aware of, that there is this profiling and there, and there is this layer of prejudice that still exists.
0: Right, right. What did you think about then, Eric Adams' statement that he was going to come around and visit some of the some of the black-owned coffee shops in Brooklyn, um, and people identifying some of them to try to support the local uh, the local mom and pops?
1: I think it's a great idea. I mean, not just being black-owned, but just being small business right. because um, operating a business in Brooklyn in, in this climate is tough. And you know, I mean, as everything goes up and up, rent wages. It just becomes harder for small businesses. I mean, I mean, like, bittersweet and sit and wonder, that is the true essence of a mom and pop. It's owned by me and my wife. So, um, by um, having Eric say that he'll come around, I mean, it, it's, it's a positive thing, because people will, like, realize that, yes, there are alternatives to, to uh, Starbucks. There are small-owned businesses in Brooklyn, coffee and if,
3: shops. And if people don't support uh, businesses like ours. Uh, they will go away. Small pop shops will
0: go away. And yeah, and, and ones like yours, which certainly have a lot better breakfast sandwiches than ones at Starbucks. I'm a little bit biased, though, but uh, the ham and cheese croissant <laughs> is in <is> this <that laughs> world at yeah, Bittersweet. Um, well, hey, you guys, thanks so much for coming on in such short notice. I really appreciate you sharing some of your thoughts. Uh, and I uh, look forward to seeing you guys in the neighborhood. Thanks, Ross. Thanks, Ross. All right, take care. Coming up, two conversations, one with a marine biologist who will make a case for optimism when it comes to the environment, and will also talk about an effort to get more women involved in the climate change discussion, and then Brooklyn's hidden gems. Stay tuned. Right now we have an environmental protection agency that wants to roll back regulations for auto emissions, the Clean Air Act, etc. An interior secretary who wants to drill offshore, any shore, of the United States. And fossil fuel companies are re-energized, excuse the pun. The United States has backed out of the Paris Climate Treaty, there's a garbage patch largely made up of plastics floating in the Pacific that some are saying is three times the size of France. Okay, maybe it isn't that big, but we really don't know for sure. Nevertheless, plastics and other pollutants in the ocean are a problem, and so is climate change. Just ask people dealing with the aftermath of hurricanes, mudslides, and forest fires. And that's just scratching the surface of our pollution problems. But our next guest considers herself an Earth optimist. No, she's not a climate change skeptic. She's a Brooklyn-based environmental scientist, marine biologist, who studies the impacts of climate change on sea life. She also works to empower women and girls to get more involved in environmental science and the conservation surrounding climate change and what can be done to promote conservation. Since the 48th annual Earth Day is this Sunday, we thought we'd invite her on the show to talk about her work on both fronts. Alicia perez Porro, thank you for coming on 112BK. Thank
3: you for inviting me.
0: So, can you just tell me real quick, what is Earth Optimism?
3: So, Earth Optimism is a movement around uh, climate change, but with an optimistic perspective. We are always hearing stories about climate change and how, basically, the the world is going to end Mm -hmm. and we are all going to die. Mm -hmm. And this is a whole new perspective because there are a lot of people working to uh, fix climate change effects and prevent uh, these effects to go further, and all these people are actually having some success. And Mm -hmm. this is the movement that is sharing all of these Mm -hmm. successful stories around climate change Mm -hmm. to make us all feel better and to still have hope, because Mm -hmm. there is still hope. There's a lot of things that we can do, and there's a lot of things that we can um, try to fix, in a sense.
0: Mm -hmm. So not to give us false hope, and these are scientists who are part of this movement, right? And people who are coming up with solutions. Yes. How, How does it tie into your work? And I mean, you know, tell me because it sounds like you're coming up with some solutions, um, and you can tell us. I don't think I mentioned in the introduction that you work with sea sponges.
3: Yes. Mm-hmm. So, um, so as, as you said, I, I am a marine biologist, mm-hmm. and I, I work at the Smithsonian at the National Museum of Natural History with marine um, with marine sponges. And what I do is that I use genomic tools to study how climate change affects these marine sponges and the environment where they live. And in in my research or in not exactly my research, but some colleagues' research, what they are discovering is that actually sponges are not doing that bad with climate change. And corals are really suffering the most. Mm. But sponges are coping with climate change effects. And this is leading sponges in some reefs, like Caribbean reefs, to take over the reef. So in Caribbean reefs, uh, some research is um, showing that they are switching from being being coral dominated to being sponge dominated. So this is a little bit of an optimistic story mm. because at least sponges are not all of them dying. Right. And
0: so we don't we, we talked on the phone, I don't know if we can we can't qualify to say whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. It's just a thing and sponges are kind of winning in maybe in the climate change situation but you're finding ways that maybe you can pull some of the the, the genetic material from the sponges and maybe help kind of um, introduce that to other species? Is that?
3: So this is not exactly what I do. But uh, yeah, this could be a possibility, yeah, this is, um, I don't know if you hear this technique, CRISPR, it's being all over the news, Mm -hmm. how you can modify genetically uh, organisms, Uh, and and we are not doing this with the sponges, but there are some researchers that Mm -hmm. they are uh, thinking about doing this with corals, for instance, Mm -hmm. and they are like, um, some corals can be resistant to climate change effects, and they are like trying to find out why, and if they can genetically Genetically modify corals and transplant them back right. to the ocean, mm-hmm. so uh, we can have genetically modified corals growing in the ocean that they're going that we know that they're going to survive climate change. Mm-hmm. So, and what I what I do is I try to identify the, the genes that make sponges resilient mm-hmm. to climate change. Mm-hmm. And I do I do um, basic research, but my basic research can help other researchers that do more um, application mm-hmm. in maybe, I don't know, the thing that we were dreaming about, that right. maybe they can get these genes that I am describing and modify some other organisms. Or these genes can be the key for other organisms so you can know if, oh, this organism is going to survive or this one is not going to survive mm-hmm. based on if they have these genes for resilience activated or not. Mm
0: -hmm. And so this gets into a a basic issue for me when we talk about climate change and the environment issue where where science is moving ahead because it has to and because we have to as as a species to survive, but it does nothing alone to kind of deal with human behavior. I should mention, Um, And we spoke off camera about the environmental activist who who killed himself um, this past weekend. And and the notice that he left behind was his his despondency over the way that he felt we were going with this administration and just with the environmental movement. He wanted to make a very bold statement with his death. Um, But also he felt like people weren't sacrificing enough. And so I know, but you work on on that part of things too, but trying to motivate people to get Mm -hmm. more involved. Um, can you talk about that a little bit?
3: Yeah, sure. Um, first of all, I didn't know about this uh, guy committing suicide. It was a total shock when I mm-hmm. found out, and it's a really sad story, and, and certainly there are a lot of reasons to be to be sad and to be a, a pessimist about how things are going, mm-hmm. especially if we take into account the administration that the U.S. have right mm-hmm. now, but I think that um, related to to earth optimism. Um, What I usually say to people that they ask me, what can we do? is, uh, and I I think that I shared this quote with you over the phone, is, nobody can do everything, but everybody can do something. Mm -hmm. And I think that part of the pessimism is because we try to do everything. Mm -hmm. And we cannot do everything because, A, not everything is under our control, and B, if you try to do everything, then you're completely unhappy. So, just try to pick a cause and stick to that cause. And this cause can be something really, really simple, like I'm going to try to do the groceries with with a fabric bag instead of a plastic bag every day. And once you have this incorporated in your routine, then you can pick a second cause that can be on Wednesdays, I'm going to bike to work. Mm-hmm. And little by little, uh, with time, you are going to have a more sustainable life and you're probably going to inspire others. Mm-hmm. And I, I like to share these stories, especially to, to young, young people, because, um, I mean, they have a lot of life, mm-hmm. so <laughs> they right. can do a lot of things and they can incorporate in their routines a lot of things. And I really think that it's just a matter of trying to live a more sustainable life. Mm-hmm. and. This is certainly something that everybody can, can try to do.
0: Sure, sure. And you also are working in the realm of, uh, you, as you mentioned, um, or maybe I mentioned, trying to get women and girls more involved in, in STEM, in, in science, technology, engineering, and math, uh, more engaged in the conversation. Why, why is that? I mean, what have you been seeing in in your experience being being a scientist?
3: So um, I identify myself as a woman, and I I've been in science since I don't know a long time ago. Mm-hmm. And and as a woman in science, you face a lot of challenges and you uh, face disadvantages. And this is if we relate this with climate change, this is something that not only is unfair; it is also something that is not beneficial for anyone because we. We need we need all the voices and all the voices matter. And right now, in in leadership positions, making decisions for climate change, there's a, a sad lack of women in there. So we are missing fifty percent of the population in this world. There are women, and uh, I'm, I'm I, be, I became this passionate advocate for women and girls in science, because I really believe that our voices matter and we need to to use them and we have a lot of things to say and it's not better or worse, it's just different. It's mm-hmm. a different perspective sure. and it's it's important.
0: Well, and I also read in some of the literature with Homeward Bound, which is one of the organizations, right, that tries to get mm-hmm. um, women and girls involved uh, in, in the sciences. Uh, and, and talking about climate change and being part of the conversation, that it, it is women around the world who usually bear the brunt, at least of the immediate impacts of climate change, um, when there are droughts, for example, right? Yeah, women that's who correct. Have to, who are the ones who are collecting water in, in drought-stricken places, right? Yeah. Having to walk greater distances. What are, I mean, so what were you, was that some of the inspiration as well?
3: Yeah, uh, so one of the things that we discover not we discover, but that was a case study mm-hmm. during our time in Antarctica with Homeward Bound, is that women suffer more the consequences of climate change effects than men, mm-hmm. especially in rural areas. That means that these women have also the key mm-hmm. in their communities to fight climate change. And um, one, one case study that we did was this community of women in Morocco, mm-hmm. that they convinced all the men to stop cutting the trees around the village and to start using uh, solar ovens, mm-hmm. and that was a, a, an example of how women leadership in rural communities, the most affected ones by the effects of climate change, can be true leaders to fight climate change if you give them a voice.
0: You know, to get back to the to the oceans because that's your area of research. I wonder. You know, one thing I think there was a. Um, a report out, you know, in in you know a lot comes out around Earth Day, right? About the, mm-hmm. our our what's going on here. I mentioned the the big garbage patch in the Pacific. There was something else I saw about all this effluent that's going in and creating these dead zones mm-hmm. in the ocean. Um, I think the um, Earth Day Network is which is maybe kind of an offshoot or a website that's related to Earth Day, I'm not quite sure what they, they're, they're targeting plastic, you know, and yep. our over, over-reliance on, on plastic and how that's finding, and microplastic and fibers are finding their way into the ocean. Um, I mean, what are, you, what are you seeing there? I mean, I don't know if you, you examine that space at all, I'm sure you're aware of it, but what in that, what, how can we look at that and feel not feel, you know, concerned, and <laughs> pessimistic.
3: Well, that's a um, that's a good one because I'm slightly pessimistic on this <laughs> one. <laughs>
1: no, no, you're supposed to give us hope.
3: <laughs> no, there is hope. There is hope. Um, plastic is a huge problem. Mm. It's a huge problem in the ocean, and it's really sad because we were in Antarctica for a month, and we saw a lot of plastic oh in this remote. Area of the world without a civilization, we saw an incredibly amount of, of plastic, and that was really sad. And also, there are a lot of studies that they say that in a couple of years, plastic um, is going to be more abundant than fishes in mm-hmm. the ocean. So we need to we need to start being conscious about it, and mm-hmm. we need to start uh, taking taking action against this. So um, something as simple as stop using straws every time that you go to a restaurant just say, I don't want the straw, hmm. or you can even buy on, on Amazon, you can buy a metallic straw that you can reuse and you can put in the dishwasher to clean oh. it. So these little details actually make a lot of difference, and we really need to start cutting the use of plastic. So for instance, what I do is that um, every time that I go to the supermarket, I try to buy the fruit or the veggies that they don't come mm-hmm. in plastic, right. and you have that option. Sure. So. And the other thing that I do is every time that I go to the beach, I just Take garbage with me from my surroundings, which is sad. But I am sure that if, if
0: you pick it up, so you're the person who's picking yeah. <laughs> no, up.
3: you, I Gee, you that.
0: need like one of those little pokers, right? That uh, <laughs> it picks up all the cans and bottles and things. Um, well, I, I did want to talk to you a little bit more about plastics, about the plastic bag tax that we were going to have mm-hmm. in the city and then we didn't, for a variety of reasons and over over reliance on plastic bags. We'll have to save that for another time because I think we're out of time. But I really appreciate you coming in um, as we approach Earth Day. It's great to to. hear this message um, and great to have some words of of hope and optimism. So thank you so much, Aletheia.
3: Thank you.
0: Do you ever feel like you're getting bored of Brooklyn? How many times can you go to Coney Island, Prospect Park, or Smorgasburg? Okay, a lot, but it's easy to get stuck in a routine and feel like you've explored all there is to explore in this diverse, vibrant, strange, innovative borough. But chances are you haven't. And if you're looking for inspiration, we've got a couple of folks who can give it. They're the authors of this book, Secret Brooklyn, which tells where you can see the world's smallest Torah, church robots, and the world's oldest subway tunnel, and Hobbit doors. Hobbit doors? We welcome Michelle Young. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. And Augustin Pasquet. Thanks for coming on 112BK. Thank you for having us. So we were just talking briefly off camera, um, Michelle, I asked you you know, how this sort of all got started. Can you tell me the origin story of this book?
2: Yeah, so this publisher, Jean Lle, is from France, but mm-hmm. they publish books in English all around the world, all written by locals, and we had previously written a book called New York, Hidden Bars and Restaurants. Oh, cool. And uh, we knew they had a book, Secret New York, and we said to the publisher, you really should have something about Brooklyn, it's really hot around the world right now, um, you speak its own city, right. uh, let's do it. So he said, if you have enough places, we can, we can do that. Uh-huh.
0: So, Augustine, you guys got to be Brooklyn explorers for this book, right? I'm, I'm imagining that you may have known some of these places already, but you got to dig a little bit. How was yeah, that? Yeah,
4: exactly, and it was very exciting because we had just moved to Brooklyn maybe like a year or two before, no, a year before we started this project, and so this was really like a crash course uh, uh, learning uh, learning Brooklyn, and so that was very, very exciting for us, and while we did know approximately like 25% of the locations in this book, we, get, we got to learn and discover and explore like many, many more. So it was a very, very exciting time, yeah.
0: So what qualifies kind of as offbeat, you know, in your book when you are looking for places that maybe are little-known gems? What do, you, what do you look for?
2: Um, you know, in our company on Cities, we say that we only publish things that make people go, what? a question mark exclamation. Mm-hmm. And I think that applies to the places in this book. We really wanted residents themselves to be very surprised. And um, when we give talks about this, we, we do like a quiz mm-hmm. as we go through the presentation. And oftentimes most people don't know where mm-hmm. these places are.
4: And it, it, but it's a good question. Like we, we gave a presentation to the guide Association of New York City and these guys are very knowledgeable. They are great, etc. But they were caught off guard on some of these locations. And to Michelle's point, this guide was really thought as uh, a guide for residents more than for visitors. If you've lived in Brooklyn, in, uh, in in your whole life, uh, you will discover places in this book. So that that we kept like residents in mind as we were uh, selecting the places. So it's kind of a different Not For tourist Guide in a way. But so what were some of those places
0: that made you go, what? Well, the Hobbit doors, I think is a very good one. I was going to (laughs) ask about the Hobbit doors. (laughs) I'm very excited about the Hobbit doors. I always look, you know, like to feel like I'm living in a shire at times. Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
2: So on the border of Gowanus and Carroll Gardens area, there's Uh a street called Dennett Place. It has all sorts of secrets because it's spelled differently and Mm -hmm. all throughout history. Some people actually think it might have been Bennett place and misspelled um, but along this whole street on two sides uh, there's a main door after you go up the staircase but underneath it is a matching miniature door mm-hmm. and all the doors are designed and painted differently mm-hmm. throughout uh, the street so it's just kind of a really funny Mm-hmm. One-off thing that's no—I've se- I've seen it nowhere else in New York City actually, uh-huh. um, and I got to go inside. So once you go inside, you understand exactly that uh, there are no hobbits walking through the front door. But yeah, there are a few steps you go down and you make a turn and there's a full-size uh, bedroom mm-hmm. down there. But... Right.
0: Well, a little disappointed that there are no real-life hobbits <laughs> there, but I, I got to go check that out. Um, what were some other things that were really exciting.
4: Um, I think you mentioned it in the introduction, but uh, Torah Animal World is is a quite a unique place because it's a museum where you see uh, animals. It's like a taxidermy, and uh, these are all the animals of the Torah that are in this one museum. And it's, uh, it's a museum run by a, a rabbi who's absolutely great. And when I went there to take uh, photos, I was the only guy, uh, the only person there in the whole museum, and he played this video. Uh, all I mean, uh, a good half of it was in Hebrew, and so he asked me if I spoke Hebrew, and I was like, I, I don't speak Hebrew and so I was alone surrounded by these like a uh, taxidermy like lions and stuff uh, and like listening to like a video in Hebrew <laughs> so it was a bit of like a unique place and then uh, as I went to see the the world's smallest Torah which is in this uh, museum there was like a Hasidic Jewish uh, father and his and his son and uh, he was quite confused by my presence I would say because I was just quite, had played, just played tennis I was like in my sports outfit and uh, He he turned back to me and he was like, uh, are you Jewish? And like, uh, no, no, I'm not Jewish. He's very confused, and then uh, he turns back five minutes later and he's like, is your mother Jewish? I'm like, no, no, she's not Jewish. They're so like, what are you he doing here? He's trying to convert you.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, and but so when we're talking the world's smallest Torah, how small was this Torah?
2: It's about two, two and a half inches tall. You have to use a magnifier glass to read it. And, and were,
4: they, they, were they praying from that Torah when you were walked in? No, they were not praying. They were really just showing it as a as, a, as an artifact. But we were told
2: that they, they actually use it once a week.
4: Uh-huh. Where did it come from?
2: Uh, it was made specifically as a collector's item. I see. Uh, okay. Yeah. All
0: right. <laughs> uh, and, and so, you know, um, I asked you, uh before we, we began taping about a Dead Horse Bay, which I understand is there, which is that old um, beach that you I guess they used to cremate horses there. Yeah. That's why it's called Dead Horse Bay. Yeah. And all those old like it also used to be a landfill, so all this exactly. stuff is kind of bubbling to the surface like these old bottles and, yeah. and kind of cool things that people find there. What were some of the other, you know, places that were were like that that one could maybe make an outing
2: to? Yeah. Um, one of the great trips I went on was on a parrot safari. And there's a man who gives free tours once a month of um, these Argentinian green parrots Uh that came here maybe in the 60s,
0: 70s. I think we spoke about him once on this show. We've been wanting to get him on. Yeah. So it's a fabulous
2: uh, tour. Uh And um, to realize that these these birds live here all year round, Mm -hmm. uh, right in uh, Greenwood Cemetery and in uh, more mid-southern Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Um, another amazing place is uh, a grocery store in Marine Park that's literally frozen since 1939, but wow. it's still run. Uh, so a World War II veteran, uh, John Cortese, runs that store and he's maybe 95, 96 Wait, so right I'm, now. So I'm
0: confused, it's frozen?
2: It's frozen, frozen in, time in time, meaning like, the decor hasn't changed. Ah. He's still using uh, real weights, Oh wow! Okay. Uh, there's wooden plank floors that uh, are kind of twisted and tin ceilings. But
0: it's not commodities from that time, like they've updated No, like they no, yeah. it. but I mean, yeah, essentially
2: okay. they're like, you know, fresh fruits and things. Mm-hmm. So it's um, it still has that old right. school feel. Okay. So it's a really you, wonderful place. when you walk place.
4: in, he, he, he greets you and say, hey, welcome to 1960. 1939. Uh, 1939 yes. or something, so it's very really fun. And when the power broke down, uh, when there was a power shutdown uh, these last few years. Uh, he was running, uh, running off gas. He was running. So he yeah, yeah, yeah he, he didn't need electricity <laughs> because his uh, scales and everything, we oh, just
0: right. put, like, wait, so yeah. Perfect, you need to have a ca- an automated cash register, right, you yeah, exactly. just using an abacus or something? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, that sounds great. So the book has been out for how long now?
2: Uh, maybe nine months, came out okay. last July.
0: What, what's the response been, and have people been writing to you with other things that maybe aren't in the book that you should include in the next volume?
2: Yeah, I mean, people have been really excited. We've been presenting it to a lot of residents, so mm-hmm. as Augustan said, um, people uh, are happy to be surprised, I think, mm-hmm. and happy to have places to discover. discover. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there are definitely places that uh, we want to add mm-hmm. next time. We'll right. see. Yeah. Uh-huh.
0: And so, what are there? So, and also, tell me about your website. The website you guys run, Untapped Cities.
2: Yeah, it's a website to help New Yorkers rediscover their city. So mm-hmm. we've been around since 2009, um, and we are a web magazine and a tour company mm-hmm. for locals. So uh, we do quirky things from going to see what the remnants of Penn Station are inside the current station, to the abandoned hospitals on Ellis Island. Um, All the tours are of course run by locals and over 90% of the people who come are from New York City. Yeah.
0: Oh, cool. One other question I'd be remiss if I didn't ask. Um, Are there any hidden gems in this neighborhood that we could walk out our door and see in Fort Greene? Uh,
2: One that's very close by is the uh, former Paramount Theater that's um, in Long Island University that's right now a basketball court. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and, that's
4: being converted to back into a theater, yeah, actually. But yeah, but it's
2: one of the Grand movie palaces yeah. uh, from you know the twenties and thirties, yeah, and I've,
4: I've been in there.
0: It's a, it's a little strange an odd experience when you walk in and you see this sort of you know <laughs> yes. uh, all the,
4: the velvet and the you know movie yeah, colored, just, and uh, then all of a sudden there's a basketball court there. And there's actually even like a an organ that comes out of the stage. And it's a Wulitzer organ, and there are great. By few stage and we mean
2: basketball court. Yeah, now, yeah, yeah it's right? yeah, <laughs> true. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um,
2: there's also remnants of the Atlantic Avenue Tunnel that are around here. Uh, I know um, Bob Diamond used to give these. Amazing Amazing tours Does where
0: you do those go, anymore? Like no, they kind of they put those barricades up and people yeah, are going go, go you go know, down plunging down yeah. in the middle of it. Uh, uh, yeah, Avenue. unfortunately he
2: was shut down. But um, there's a restaurant that discovered some parts as they were expanding a speakeasy downstairs. Oh, wow. So it's under the restaurant Chez in a place called Le Boudoir mm-hmm. on
4: Atlantic Avenue.
2: And there's like uh-huh. a former coal room that they've uh, refurbished. Right. And okay. so it's that's an amazing spot around here. Well,
0: that's great. Well, so in like the thirty seconds we have left, and you know I referenced this at the beginning, and maybe this is just me, that people do tend to get stuck in their routine. What would you, How would you encourage people to kind of break out of that in um, a way to really explore their surroundings because it seems like there's so much that's untapped?
4: Two things. When you walk somewhere, drop your phone and look around. And maybe if you go home, if you go to work, get off the subway station just one stop before mm-hmm. and walk a little more and take a path that you don't usually take and make an effort to look up. That's great advice. OK, well, thank you guys for coming on the show. I really thank appreciate you. it. Thank you very much for having us.
0: Thanks for joining us today. We'll be back next week to talk about housing issues from the Kushner Companies to NYCHA, solar powering Puerto Rico, and child welfare in the city. Hope you can join us. Have a great weekend and happy Earth Day.
4: 112BK is hosted by me, Ashley C. Ford, and is written and produced by Ross Tuttle. It's also produced by Fred Brown, Shireen Barghee, Emily Bogosian, Naeem Van, Kritzi Roberts, Charmaine Lamb, and is edited by Clinton Filson Jr. and Kyrell Palmer. Our show is recorded by Eric Hogesack, Antonio Rosario, Leslie Hayes, and Steve Dissette. And our theme music was composed and produced by Brad Parker. Our executive producers are Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias.